Built Not Born, episode 24. I'm Joe Chicarone. Thank you for joining us. Built Not Born is the podcast where each episode we interview everyday people living remarkable lives. Our guests have made their impact from the boardroom to the battlefield, from the jujitsu mat to the field of medicine. Today's guest is Clayton Prince. Clayton Prince a native of the Germantown section of Philadelphia, has always wanted to be an actor. At the age of 17, he was acting in off-Broadway shows with the likes of Robert Downey Jr. Upon graduating high school, Clayton received a scholarship to study math at Temple University, but soon dropped out when a professor would not let him reschedule a final exam when the exam conflicted with an audition he needed to attend. At that moment, Clayton decided to go all in and pursue his dream of becoming an actor. Clayton walked away from his scholarship, dropped out of college, and moved to New York City, vowing never to return to Philly until he succeeded. At one point, Clayton was actually sleeping on a couch in a crack house in Brooklyn and living on $7 a day when his big break finally came. Clayton auditioned for and won the role of Lisa Bonet's boyfriend, Denise Huxtable, on the hit TV show, The Cosby Show. Clayton not only got the part, but he literally stole the show. Clayton ad-libbed his scene and became known as the reggae singing boyfriend in an episode that not only broke a Nielsen ratings record, but became the number one rated Cosby show of all time. Overnight, Clayton Prince went from struggling actor to needing police help getting out of the New York City subway the day after the episode aired. Clayton and I discussed the tough road he traveled to make it as an actor. How he and fellow actor Blair Underwood had to actually sell children's books to support themselves between acting gigs. And what it was like to star in cult movie classics like The Last Dragon and Hairspray. Clayton tells us what it was like growing up with a father figure coming in and out of his life and why he believes parents should let their children find their own way and not have expectations on what path their kids need to take. We also talk about how Clayton got involved training Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, the lessons he learned in Jiu-Jitsu that helped him succeed as an actor, and what it was like to get his blue belt from UFC legend, Hoist Gracie. Clayton shares an amazing story of his dad's secret business and the time when his dad confronted the Philadelphia mob. Clayton also talks about his new tour company and what it's like to be an entrepreneur in today's world. So, thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, please hit the subscribe button. We have a bunch of cool interviews like this one to come. Enjoy my conversation with Clayton Prince, star of The Cosby Show, The Last Dragon, Hairspray, student of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, and entrepreneur. And remember, life is built, not born. Clayton Prince, welcome to the show. What's going on, brother? Good to see you, man. Thank you for um, having me. For listeners who may not be familiar with your work, who are you and what do you do? So most people know me from back in the day, I was Denise Huxwell's boyfriend on The Cosby Show, eight months. I, I was the reggae singing boyfriend. So that was like the big break. Even though I had done some stuff before that, like I was in the movie The Last Dragon, but the big break for me was really the Cosby Show. 
And uh, after that, I was in a movie called Hairspray. I played uh, Seaweed in uh, the original movie Hairspray with Ricky Lake. Then I was on a soap opera for a few years, Another World, playing Ruben Lawrence. Then I actually quit the soap because CBS gave me my own series called Dark Justice. And I was on there for a few years. That was fun. I started producing some stuff. I actually started a, a tour company. Right now, I have a, a tourism business called uh, the Musical History Tours. That's a that's like another interest of my music. So that's what I, I do now. Wow, that's a lot to unpack there. What an incredible career! And I want to get uh, into obviously the Cosby Show, the Seaweed and Hairspray, the Last Dragon, Another World, all the cameos you did from things like Spin mm-hmm. City, Third Watch. George Wentz show. I, I know a, a guy that might be a little famous, Robert Downey Jr. during your high school days, maybe. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I know. Yeah, I've heard of him. So much to go over in your great career. But I want to start off all the way at the beginning. Where did you grow up? Germantown, Philly, Washington, Lane and Green. Uh, actually, a small street called Burbridge Street. And uh, yeah, born and raised there. Lived in Jersey for a little bit, but then we moved back to Philly. And Went to the high school for creative and performing arts. That was my love that school. If it wasn't for Kappa, I would not have been an actor. I, just hands down. They gave me the confidence to be an actor. That it was just great. So when I went to the high school, I just knew. I was like, oh, I'm going to be a star before I'm a senior in high school. I just knew it. I, I had a manager by the time I was in 10th grade, a woman named Edie Rob. And I was going to auditions in New York all the time. And I was, I was screen testing, but I was never booking. I was never like that guy. And I got a little uh, disheartened. And so I, I was at, I went to Temple. Like in high school, the biggest thing I did was this play with Robert, Robert Downey Jr. And so I was like, okay, this will be my big thing. I'm going to be off Broadway. I had signed a contract to do the show off Broadway. We tested the show in Boston for a few months. And then at the last second, they canceled my contract. They bought me out. And I was like, wow, showbiz sucks. And I called myself quitting. And I just accepted the, the scholarship at Temple to be a math major. And I just kind of hated where my life was going. I thought, man, for the next 40 years of my life, I'm just going to be sitting at a cubicle, figuring out mathematical equations until they give me like a gold watch. And oh, God, I hated that. But I thought, oh, that's life. I got to grow up. I got accepted. But then there was a nationwide talent search for this movie that Motown was producing called The Last Dragon. And so my manager was like, you got to try, you got to try. Come on, come on. They're coming to Philly. They're going to all these major uh, cities. So uh, long story short, I came second for the lead in the country. Even though I wasn't a great martial artist at the time, really, I was barely a yellow belt in Taekwondo. And I, I didn't even get my yellow belt yet. I was barely. I was like, soon to be a yellow belt. But I was pretty good with gymnastics. So at the auditions, I would just do all these flips. And I didn't know, Hi-ya! you know, kind of thing. And they were like, oh, man. You must be a black belt. <laughs> no, I am not. And but I actually had the. I was in rehearsal for the lead for one day. But the guy who played Shona, he also was not a martial artist. And someone at one point said, "We're going to have this major film, this big, major martial art film, and the two leads aren't martial artists." So the guy Time Mark who got it, he's a, a phenomenal martial artist. He has a great look, phenomenal martial artist. But they weren't too sure about his acting skills. And they said, you're a good actor, Clayton, but your martial arts skills. So after that, I was like, I'm going to make sure I'm, I'm ready for the sequel for my martial arts stuff. So I started really putting some time in martial arts. And actually, a lot of people don't know this. 
the guy who was the fight double for Shona, his name was Billy T. Taylor. He became my first martial art instructor. So back it up even a little bit more. You grew up in Germantown. What was it like mm-hmm. around your dinner table when you're, say, 10 years old? That's a formative time for in people's lives. 10 years old, who is at the dinner table? What's going on? What family members are there? What was the scene? No one has ever asked that question. Wow. Wow. I got to think about this one for a second. Let's see. There was my mom when I was 10 years old. Yeah. My mom had a boyfriend that lived with us. He wasn't my biological father in any way. When I was 10, my older brother, Darnell, I don't think he was living with us by that time. My brother is nine years older than me. Okay. So he was probably in the army at that time. My sister, who was seven years older than me, I guess she was like a senior in, in high school at that time. I was, I was, I was the youngest by, uh, by a long shot. So I was always on my own. I looked up to my brother and sister, and, but yeah, I was my own person. So tell us about your parents. So your mom was there. Tell us about your dad. Did you have a relationship with him? What was it like? Well, so here is the story with that. My dad and my mom split up when I was about four years old. And I didn't really hang out with my dad until I was about, I'll say 11. He started coming back into my life. And, and it was funny because when I first started hanging out with him again, it was as if I, I felt like I was meeting a celebrity. Wow, I know you're that dude. You're, you're my dad. I know you. Because it was like, like that recognition. Wow. Like, I want you to know me too because I know you. And, and uh, I would say that he came in my life. Really, I, like at that time, I needed that father figure, that father advice. If he would have come in my life any later, I would have been a different person. So I'm, I'm glad for that. He was a great guy. He, he, he had a, a hard upbringing. How much should I say? My dad, when he was younger, did some jail time. He was in a street gang when he was a kid. And so he, he did jail time because he was involved in a street gang. And then when he came out, no one would hire him. So he was doing a lot of street hustler kind of stuff. He was like on the upper end of the street hustle. He was what they called a numbers runner. Mm-hmm. And so because of that, we, we all went to private schools. Anyone that uh, is the, the child of a person in that life, we were not allowed to know anything about the numbers. We were not allowed to be involved in the numbers. I didn't even know my dad was a numbers runner. We had a supermarket at 25th and Ridge that was actually a front for the numbers business. And we weren't allowed to know anything about it. And if anyone dared try to introduce us to that life, they would catch hell from my dad. Catch hell from my dad. So we were these naive, preppy kids that went to private school. I went to William Penn Charter when I was a kid. Wow. Yeah, I, I had no idea. Billy Green, he was like my friend, my buddy. And I, I knew that his dad was, you know, in politics. But when you're a kid, you don't really know what that means. Mm-hmm. It was just Billy. I, I liked hanging out with him. Yeah. And But yeah, I was, I was very preppy. And then when my dad left, so did the money. And then I had to learn a little, little bit of street stuff. And then my dad came in my life and that was at a perfect time. So I got a, a balance of the William Penn Charter life mm-hmm. and the street life. Thank you for sharing that. What's the most powerful or vivid memory of your childhood? I would say it, it was really shocking to me, the huge disparity, the huge difference between a public school education 
and a private school education. A lot of kids in public schools are just surviving. And you almost learn that's it. Like, yeah, you might how to count. You might do some simple math, but you're just really about survival. Like, you like you learn, you don't go to the bathroom unless you really got to go. You know, that's what you learn in, in, in public school. And because you never know if you're going to get jumped in the bathroom by kids who are just cutting class. You like a... It, like when I went to private school, were there arguments and were there fights? Of course there were. That's normal. That's life. But it was different. Like like in private school, it was like, I don't like you. You don't like me. Agreed. Mm-hmm. We'll fight after school. Agreed. Whoever stops, whoever starts crying first, that's who loses. Agreed. And it's, it's almost like an honor system in the, in the conflict. In certain street schools, it's not that. It's like, it's, okay, I won. You started crying. I win. They're like, no, no, not until there's blood, not until you're bleeding. Like, what the hell? That's almost like there was like a there was just a difference in the mentality of kids who of kids who knew they had a future and kids who weren't sure if they had a future. Remember, I went to this uh, private school in Philly in 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 seventh grade or maybe eighth grade, and the teacher gave us two math problems for homework. I was like, are you kidding? Two math problems? That's it? Like, that's absurd. In private school, you got like a whole page, a whole chapter, two math problems. And I was shocked to see that most of the kids didn't even do the two problems. It's different worlds, huh? Literally so, different worlds. Two totally different worlds. I'm doing some research on you. You told an incredible story once about your dad. Getting back to your dad for a second. About him okay. and the Philadelphia mob. Might have been Phil Testa, maybe? You told wow. Yeah. Wow, you heard about that. I don't wow. know. Wow, you, you haven't done your homework. I did. Uh, <laughs> would you mind sharing that story? Wow. Okay. Like I said, my dad was a numbers runner, but he was like a major numbers runner. He wasn't like the the guy hanging on the street corner. He might you never saw my dad hanging on the street corner. We had a nice house, and I stayed in private school, and and my dad said that one night Philip Tesla called the house, and he said the numbers were taking it over. So just let you know. You're done. And if you don't agree to this, we're going to have an issue. So my dad's thing was, without the numbers, we were dead in the water anyway. We, we couldn't survive. So my, my dad said, but they called him up. They said, we know where you live. We got your phone number. We know where your kids go to school. We know everything about you. You're done. And my dad said, no. He said, okay, you know where I live. Where are you? I'll go to where you are right now. No, are you crazy? No, you know who I am? This is Philip Tesla. He said, I know you are. He said, I'll go to you right now. And they gave him the address and he showed up unarmed because if he went there with a gun, that's, that would just give him an excuse to kill him. And they're like, the ball's on you, dude. You came here to our place. And he said, I have to keep my numbers or else I, I have to. That's the only way I have to support my family. So he, my dad said the agreement was that he could no longer get any bigger. He couldn't expand. And the money that he was making, he had to pay street tax on. Wow. And but then they admired his balls for showing up there unarmed. That right in there. Courage takes many forms. And that is one of the most crazy things I've I've heard on this podcast. That is amazing. Thanks for sharing that story. Thank you. So you graduate high school, but you get a math scholarship Mm -hmm. to go to Temple. Is that correct? Okay. Yes. They so take, my books. Yes. Yep. So you go to Temple University on a scholarship. At what point 
Do you realize that's not working out? And what's your next move? The temple. And I still had the acting bug in me. And there was one night, my older brother, you know, he was back home from the army. And uh, he said, Clayton, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to audition. There's a comedy club downtown called the, uh, the Comedy Factory Outlet, uh, second of market. And I was like, I'm going to audition. Can you just come and give me some moral support? And I always thought stand-up was the, the hardest thing ever to do. And I was so proud of my brother for even trying. And I was like, you know, cool. Yeah, I said, I'm broke. I'm a college kid. I'm broke. I need car fare to get down there on the subway. And I was like, yeah, 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 I got you. So we go down there. And uh, the woman at the, the door, her name was Maria. She was like, she stops me at the door. She's like, $10 plus the two-drink minimum. I said, oh, no, you don't understand. I'm here with my brother's auditioning. So I'm just with him. And she said, when your brother gets him for free because he's auditioning, you have to pay. And I said, I, I don't have any money, but, but you're saying if, if I just go on stage and I just crack a couple of jokes, I, I can get him for free? She was like, yeah. So I went in. I think I drew number 11. My brother drew number one because they had to pick your number out of the hat to, for the order. And uh, I was like, I don't. Give me your number. I'll, I'll go first. Let me get it out of the way. You can take 11 because no one wants to go first. And long story short, I made it and my brother didn't. Then I fell in love with doing stand-up, and which is actually what got me the, the last Dragon audition. Because at the audition, it was like a big catapult, and I just started cracking jokes and doing stand-up. And, uh, but at that, I just thought, okay, I'll be like this mathematician accountant who does stand-up at night. And I thought that was going to be my life. And, uh, but the role I did in the last Dragon, they were filming joint finals week. And it was like, oh man, I'm going to miss my finals doing this part in the movie. And all of my professors said, you know what? This is huge. You're working with Motown. You're working with Barry Gordy. Don't worry about it. We'll just grade you on what you did so you can keep your scholarship. All of them except one. And it was in an elective class that I was taking for radio, television, and film. The professor was an actor named Ambandos. Never forget him. And he was like, who does he think he is? If he's not in my class, taking the final, then I'll fail. And it, it like went to the dean. The dean was like, this could be like a big thing. We need you to work with us. And I was like, no, I'm standing my ground. And so I lost my scholarship because of inventors, which actually, honestly, I've not met at all. I was the greatest thing that ever happened to me because mm-hmm. I, I did the film and I moved to New York. My parents were furious. They were like, do you not understand how hard it is to get a, a scholarship? You understand that like when you come back, you're going to pay for that. We're not paying for it. You're going to pay for it. You are going to come back. So I moved to New York off the money I made from The Last Dragon. This valley, I will never go back. And uh, at least not as a failure. I'll never go back to Philly. And uh, I struggled for two years. Actually, at one point, I was sleeping on a sofa in a crack house. Really? In East New York, Brooklyn. Yeah. But I, was, I was just like, I'm not going back. I'll never go back. I, at one point, my budget was $7 a day. I was working this job at this place called Ed Blank's Associates on 23rd Street and 6th Avenue. And uh, I even got Blair Underwood a job. So me and Blair used to, we used to sell ch- children's books. Uh-huh. Uh, and we would call people up in the middle of the night saying, hey, how you doing? Uh, I'm so-and-so. And uh, could you, you know, please buy your children's books? And, and yeah, me and Blair, we would sell. Me, Blair, Steve, guy named Steve was the manager of this group called Full Force. But back then, we were all nobody. We're all just struggling, you know, and uh, we would all take the subway in the Brooklyn where we live. Like I said, I was on a budget of $7 a day. Not that I was only making $50 a week. I was making probably like $150 a week. But my father always told me, 
He's still being sick. No matter what, I always save $100 a week, no matter what. If you make $150 and live on $50, you put $100 away. And then, so that's what I was doing. And so, that way for about a year and a half, thinking that's how life was going to be. And then the Cosby show happened. So walk us through that. So you're basically living on $7 a day. You're living in a crack house in Brooklyn. You're yeah, sleeping in New, you're York. in New York. Yeah, New York. How do you get in front of the people that could put you on that show? How does that happen? I had a manager and I had agents that were working with me, but I just wasn't booking. I wasn't booking it at all. I didn't even have a TV when the Cosby show came on. I heard about the Cosby show. I heard it was like this huge hit. And of course, I knew who Bill Cosby was, but I didn't know who the other cast members were. I didn't see them. I, I, didn't, I didn't have a TV. I couldn't afford it. I didn't see it. So I didn't understand what the show was. And someone at one point said, oh, he'll be perfect to play the boyfriend. And that was during the first season. I was all psyched. And they were telling me what, you know, how they want to do this with the character, that with the character is going to be this huge thing. And I'm nervous as hell. If you can imagine, I'm in a crack house, dude. I'm living on $7 a day. And I was so nervous. And on my way, for the character, I borrowed a pair of glasses from a friend of mine named Tico Wells. A lot of you guys might know Tico Wells. Tico was, he played choir boy in the movie Five Heartbeats. And he was one of my best friends in life to this day. So I borrowed these glasses from Tico. And Tico they were like a scene glasses for stigmatism that he had. And I put them in uh, my jacket pocket. And right before I got up the subway, someone picked my pocket and stole the, the glasses. That was all my nerves needed. I, I went into this like mental, mini nervous breakdown, and I had the worst audition ever in my life. And it was so bad. They were like, oh, yeah, this kid sucks. And they ended up hiring Chris Boston John for that role, first season. But they, for whatever reason, they didn't want to continue with Christoph. And the second season, they auditioned again looking for a boyfriend. But they were like, we don't want to see Clayton Prince. Don't want to see him. And they hired a new casting director. And they're like, yeah, we heard he's not a strong actor. And every agent was only allowed to like submit two actors. And no one wanted to waste their submission on me. I got an agent to, a really small agent, to waste their submission on me. You're Clayton Prince. You're actually good. And I was like, uh, thank you. And that was all I wanted to prove was that I was good. And uh, I really didn't think I was going to book it after that because Timok was there. I, in the last seven, it was me, Timok, and Last Dragon. Their Underwood was up for the role and a few other people. And I was just like, yeah, I'm not going to get it over these guys. And then go figure. I did. And it changed my life. For some of the younger people listening, the Cosby show in the 80s was the number one show on television. It was like the Seinfeld of the 80s. Like that was like the show everyone watched. It was when there was three stations, ABC, CBS, NBC. And when that was on, you would stop what you're doing. And I remember when I was really little watching it and you would sit down and you're watching the show with your family. It's like when the Eagles play, there's no traffic on the road. Uh, it's just, you're wa <laughs> yeah, it was, watching the traffic. Yeah. The Cosby show's on from 8 to 8.30 and we're watching it. Bill Cosby probably was the biggest star on television at the time. When you go for a role like that, how involved is Bill Cosby? They run it by him or they just tell him who's the new character on the show? How much say did he have? He had say over everything. And I was so nervous because my first day of rehearsal, honestly, God, I, I really thought I was going to show up and they're going to say, you're here. No, we don't want you. Oh, we made a mistake. I'm sorry. 
we wanted the other guy. Oh, we got the names mixed up. No, you're not who we wanted. I was so nervous. And I, I'm at the table read and I just felt like I was around black royalty. I don't know how else to put it. I just, I'm like, oh my God. Oh my, even though I didn't have a TV, I was like, I know who you are. I know who you are. Everyone knows who you are. And I'm playing the boyfriend of one of the prettiest girls in television. And she was actually voted on the People magazine as one of the prettiest girls in the country. And I'm playing your boyfriend. And, you know, trust me, dude, I was not a ladies' man at <laughs> all. I was not one of those guys growing up saying, ooh, I gotta have me some quick. No, <laughs> not him. Honestly, I just always thought, uh, I, I, I thought I wasn't good enough. I didn't think I was good looking enough. I was hoping that maybe they would cast me to be the best friend of the boyfriend. Maybe I'd be the best friend of Time Lock on the on the show, or I'd be the, the best friend of Blair on the show, but I didn't think it would be me. When you go through that, Lisa Bonet was a big star in her own right. How much say, how involved was she in the selection of you? I think she picked you? Nope. She, she wanted someone else to play the role. She did not. Really? Like she did not want you, really? So she yeah. doesn't want but, you and you still get picked. How's that happen? That's so pretty I'll, impressive. I'll okay, I'll, I'll tell you this. A little secret. In the episode that it's like the most famous, you know, the real famous one, but the reggae stuff, we were supposed to be head over heels in love with each other. And we were supposed to be like, you know, can't keep our hands off each other and like kissing and all that other stuff. And there was no chemistry there. There was not that kind of you know, thing with us. And so reggae was a small part of the scene, but I just made that up because we didn't have a lot of, she just really wanted this other guy to play her boyfriend. So if you ever look at that reggae scene, if you look at Lisa's face and you look at Bill's face, nobody knew what I was going to say next. Because in my mind, I was just like, screw it. If this is my last time I'm going to be here, I'm going out with a bang. And in front of a live studio audience, I just said whatever. And everyone was like, oh my God, get your money. Oh my God. And it broke a Nielsen ratings record and it changed my life. That particular show, I think that was the highest rated Cosby show that broke all ever. the records ever. Ever. And that reggae uh, episode is the most requested episode out of all the reruns. Wow. And did, that was totally ad lib when you were going up on you. That was totally, was that totally yep. ad lib? Yep. So it was a brrr, it, it was, you, there's no way you can write. Brrr, it, yeah. There's no, <laughs> no correct spelling for that. And watching that <laughs> scene, the fa- what made it, it was so funny where you and Bill were like, you did that. And then he had the perfect face. Like he, like you could tell, like, like he had that perfect, what the heck's going on look. Like when they're going back and forth to you to him, it, it's artwork, man. That scene is artwork. It's it holds up. I rewatched it a couple times, getting ready for this episode, and I'm laughing again. It was perfect. You crushed it. Ah, uh, thank you. Thanks, uh, bro. Get my whole world changed after that. So, how soon from when you film that to it airs? What's the time frame in between? Two weeks. Okay. So, at one point on a Thursday night, that is shown. At, yeah. and you don't have a TV, you said. At what point? Well, at that point, I did have a TV. Actually. Okay. I, I, at what point? During the first season, I did. Second season, I did. So I think at some point, you're going to walk outside and some people are going to be looking at you like they aren't looking at you before. How's that work? That was the funniest thing. Okay. Before I did Cosby, I did some, some, some small stuff. And I signed an autograph here and there, but it wasn't like they really knew who I was. I, okay. Robert Downey Jr. Like I said, we were friends. And Robert got me. A lot of people don't remember this, but Robert used to be a regular on Saturday Night Live. Robert and Anthony Michael Hall, they were regulars. And Robert actually got me a part 
on Saturday Night Live, like a really good part on Saturday Night Live with him and Anthony Michael Hall. Uh, it, but it was a dumb skit. Oh my God, it was so dumb. And uh, Damon Wayans, he was also in the cast, but they have different tiers of cast members. They have the regulars and then they had featured players. Featured players. And if you, if you look at the, the cast in the beginning, they're like starring so and so, so and so. And they say, I'm featuring. So featuring, you're not making as much money and you're really trying to become a regular. Damon Wayans was the funniest guy in the cast that year. And they gave him a smaller part than I did on the skit because I was friends with Robert. And uh, but me and Damon became really good friends because Robert was going through a lot of stuff at that time. And yeah, we just, yeah, we, I could have and should have been a better friend to Robert at that time in, in his life. But I, we were on different paths. But me and Damon started becoming really good friends. And but people were like, oh, wow, you're, you must be one of the new regulars on Saturday Night Live because I did a skit where. The skits where it's filmed, but it, it looks like a commercial, but it's actually a skit. Mm-hmm. Well, we were doing that outside, and people started saying, "Hey, that's the new cast of Saturday Night Live." All we did that one skit, and the skit was really—it was so bad. But anyway, that was the only time I had ever signed an autograph before. But the day after the air, I didn't have a job. I didn't have anywhere to go. I was still sleeping on a sofa, but I had moved out of East New York. I wasn't in a crack house anymore, but I was still sleeping on a sofa. And uh, someone called the apartment. They were like. Can I speak with Clayton Prince, please? And I was like, this is he. And they're like, are you the Clayton Prince who's on the Cosby Show last night? I was like, yeah. Who is this? And they're like, before I say anything else, are you the Clayton Prince who's on the Cosby Show last night who sang the reggae song? I was like, yeah. Who is this? And they're like, oh, God, we finally found you. A director wants to meet you right now. You got to come right now. Can you come in? They give me the address. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. So you know, I jump in the shower, get ready to go. And then I'm on the subway. and I, I noticed everyone staring at me. And dude, that, it's, it's like an eerie, it's a weird feeling. Because I'm thinking, I am about to get mugged. That's really what I thought. I was like, because everyone's, I'm like, there's somebody behind me. There's something going on. I'm about to get mugged. And this one little kid came over to me and was like, were you on the Cosby show last night? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, yeah. Nice to meet you, kid. And the next thing I knew, I needed security to get out of the subway. Whoa, I'm, I'm broke. I'm, I'm still broke. I'm like, you know, like, you know, people want to like, hey, can I buy you a drink? I'm like, hey, why don't you give me the money the drink costs? I'm okay. <laughs> you know, I am broke, dude. And so I, it was, my life just changed so much. But yeah, from that minute, that was a totally different life. Can you remember right before they said action, what was going through your mind? Like before you walked on the stage and you filmed the scene, can you remember what was going through your head? Honestly, uh, there was a lot of self-doubt in my head because I knew I was going to improv the whole scene pretty much. And I was so scared. I, my thought, honestly, God, was, Clay, if you have to throw up, do it behind the sofa. And I actually had a spot where I was like, if I throw up, like, I'm going to go, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly thought I'm probably going to puke right in the middle of this life-changing thing because this is so much bigger than I am. And I really didn't feel worthy of it. Like I said, I felt like I was around black royalty. I was so, oh my God. Wow. And when, as soon as I was done shooting, everyone was coming to me. They were like going past Lisa to come to me. I was like, cool. I, I still didn't think much of it. I really didn't. And lo and behold, that's what happened. 
after you were done, did you know you nailed it? What was your thoughts after they hit cut that scene? Honestly, God, I, I thought I was proud of myself. But at that point, I wasn't thinking about anybody else seeing it. I was just thinking, I'm proud of myself. I remember you got to watch this episode because you know, God knows if I'll ever be on it again. And I want everyone to know that you know, I'm doing okay in New York because everyone kind of brushed me off at that point. And maybe not everybody, but I felt that way. And I was just hoping that my mom and dad saw it. I was hoping that, you know, my friends saw it back home. And I was hoping that every girl who said no to me saw it. That's the only thing I was thinking of. It was, I was like, if I just get those three, those three people, I am good. That is three groups. You need those three groups to watch. Those three groups. Yeah. Family, friend, and every girl who said no. That's all I ask, God. Please. That's all I I, I can't tell you. It, no school prepares you for that. No, no talk you ever had from a coach prepares you for that. It's just, it's, it was life-changing. Getting back to the three groups, the best revenge is living well. And when the ball's thrown, you catch it. There's nothing better than living well after the fact. Oh my gosh. You established your cred there. You got, you're on the number one TV show, literally the top episode of the number one TV show. What's your next step? For a while, I was booking like, like everything. Because I was always like in the top five of my category, of my group, my peers. But I was never that guy. I was never that guy that got picked. All of a sudden, like every commercial that I was up for, I remember I, the, the, the producer of the commercial, they booked me there. Is he available? Is he available? Is he available? And I'm like, am I available? I'm still sleeping on a sofa. Yes, <laughs> I'm available. We couldn't figure out who we wanted. And we were like, oh, let's just take a break. Let's watch the Cosby Show. For some reason, everybody watched the Cosby Show that night. When I was doing the reggae song. And but then everyone's like, we gotta have him. We gotta have him. When you go from being so broke all of a sudden and you're getting all this attention, I, I don't know how other people deal with it, but uh, I really felt like I'm not worthy. Yeah, I dreamed of this, but honestly, that I thought someone was gonna pinch me and I was gonna wake up and I was gonna be back in the crack house in East New York, Brooklyn. I honestly thought that. Like, I didn't want to pinch me because I really thought. This life is just too good to be true right now. Before we leave the Cosby show, the Bill Cosby situation, looking back on that, when you heard 30 years later what happened to him and what, what he got convicted of, 10 being total shocked and surprised or one being a saw coming, where would you be in that? Like, were you shocked or not surprised? Not surprised. Not surprised? Not surprised. Gotcha. Okay, so let me put it this way. Bill, he has... An amazing, he invented an amazing character for himself. I didn't even know that Bill Cosby cursed before I met him. And at the first read through on Monday, my hair was long. And Bill's like, oh, You're very talented. You're very funny. You need to cut that shit out of your hair. Keep that long hair shit. And I was like, Oh, oh my God. Cosby, who never curses, he's cursing about my hair. Oh my God. Oh my God. And I didn't have enough money for a haircut. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, and I just thought that was so out of character for him to even use profanity. But no, it's not. <laughs> Once you know Bill, it's like, it's not, out of, it's not out of character for Bill to curse. It is not. I heard stories. I heard stories. Understood. Not surprised. Um, Getting back to the cursing, it's funny. There was that great, when I was really little, I remember that great Eddie Murphy skit, Doing Richard Pryor. 
when he was talking about Bill Cosby oh, yeah. calling me up and cursing and flip like that Phil's flying filth and, and he's doing Bill Cosby because Bill Cosby <laughs> doesn't curse. He was getting on Eddie Murphy for cursing. And uh and uh it's, it's a great skit by Eddie Murphy doing Richard Pryor talking to Bill Cosby and uh but like you would think he didn't curse. Yeah, you would think growing up like he he was I, I didn't love it all. But the other thing is it's what you do publicly. It's not what you do behind closed doors. It's what you do, what you show publicly. He was very conscious of the image that he was portraying of Black America. And he didn't want to portray a, uh, a ghetto side of life. It was like such an honor that he felt I was a representative of upper middle Black America, even though, you know, that's too long before that I was living in a crack house. But, you know, you know, but the thought that he thought I could and I was that person. And I, whatever Bill did, I, I cannot defend or you know, whatever, but he changed my life. And I got to be grateful forever for that. Mm-hmm. He changed my life. I would not have been who I am if it wasn't for Bill. So I, I got to say, you know, thank you. And I'm grateful. And mm-hmm. yeah, was I disappointed by some things? Sure I was. Yeah, I was. But... I still owe him. Thank you for sharing thoughts. Moving on. So from there, you're in a little movie called Hairspray playing seaweed. How's yeah. that? Yeah, man. That's a classic. That particular one, you're like the up and coming star. And in that movie, there's a bunch of older, like, like it was like Blondie, like Debbie Harry was in there. You had like Sonny yeah. Bono. You had all these people that were stars that were towards like in the twilight. And then you were like that young up and coming one in there. It's a weird cast of characters. It's like Sonny, Sonny Bono said that Hairspray was like all the episodes of Fantasy Island that he was doing. There was like a group of people, Fantasy Island Love Boat. And it was like, whenever you're on Fantasy Island and Love Boat, your careers are either on your way out or you're on the way up. Yep. And he said that's how Hairspray was for him. But Sonny was so cool. The woman who played my mom, Ruth Brown, I had no idea who she was. I had no idea. And it was between her and another woman. Uh, I think Mabel Kane was the second choice to play my mom. And I was like, wow, John, we should pick Mabel Kane because I knew who she was. And he was like, you don't know who Ruth Brown is? I was like, no. And like, for that reason, John was like, we're going to hire Ruth Brown. Ruth Brown was uh, the first singer on Atlantic Records to have a number one hit. Atlantic Records used to be called the house that Ruth built because she was she built them up. If there was no Ruth Brown, there would be no Atlantic Records. And I'm so proud that I got to play her. Mm-hmm. So transitioning out after the movies, they, you do you're in another world. You do a bunch of mm-hmm. cameos on some big shows like Spin City, Third Watch. At what point yeah. do you? At what I was point, recurring on those shows. And recurring to how do you transition from that world to your world now? Like, how do you know when can you be called now into something? Or at some point, do you like say, "Hey, I'm out"? Like, how does that work? Where you have, you have recurring roles and you're in different shows, you're doing cameos, you're on a soap opera. Like, how do you stay in the game, or how do you decide to leave the game? How does that work? It, it's hard. There's always this pressure on getting another job, and acting is one of those. It's one of those fields where there's always pressure for your next job. I just always feel the movie uh, Highlander. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that movie, mm-hmm. Highlander? That's why I felt like every time I went to an audition, there can be only one. 
And like wow. you're around these great people, the amazing people, and you really want to be friends with these amazing people. But at the end of the day, there can be only one. Mm-hmm. And you're like everyone's trying to chop each other's heads off to be that one. That's how it was being an actor. And especially, not to get worried about it, but especially for black actors, because it's just it's only made one role for us in this show. Like a like, okay, perfect example. When you screen test for a soap opera, this is how it used to be. If there's two people that you really liked, then sometimes they would say, it doesn't happen often, but sometimes they would say, you know what, let's hire both of them. We'll hire one as the character they were auditioning for another character if we really like them. But that would never, ever happen for the black actors at that time. I was like, no, there was just one. There's only going to be one. And so there was that weird pressure. And that sometimes that pressure would bring up animosity against you and other actors mm-hmm. because everyone wants to work. No one wants to hate each other, but everyone just wants to work. When I did Dark Justice, Dark Justice was just an offer I got. And I was like, I have finally arrived. I don't have to audition anymore. People are calling me with offers. And, and Dark Justice was, I loved that show. We did that show for three years on CBS. I love that show. And that you know, was, you know, making really like decent money. But then when it was over, it was like, yeah, I had to start all over again. Mm-hmm. That was weird. And oh, here's, here's one thing a lot of people don't know. So I, I became known as the martial art sidekick on Dark Justice. And then I get an offer to play Robin in the movie The Bat, the Cat, and the Penguin for Warner Brothers because Dark Justice was a Warner Brothers show. So I'm like, <laughs> I'm going to play Robin? Oh, my God. I'm like all excited. I literally was like, offer was on the table. And I was shooting Dark Justice in Spain. And uh, they, they were like, yeah, we're, you and Michael Keaton. You, But then they were like, hold it, Clayton. Um, how tall are you? I was like, six feet. And they were like, oh, no, Michael Keaton is 5'9". We do not want Robin to be taller than Batman. First of all, I thought that they, they were going to make Robin black. And trust me, it was so corny. It was so corny how they were going to make Robin black. But I was, I was going to say that because... I didn't care. I was going to be a freaking superhero, dude. Can you imagine that? I'm like, I'm like this son of a Dumbers runner who lived in a crack house. And I'm going to be Robin, the freaking boy wonder. Oh my God. But then they, they pulled that offer because I was too tall. And then I think they went to Marlon Wayans. And Marlon used to be a lot shorter than me. Now he's taller than me, but he used to be a lot shorter than me. And so they went to him, but they're like, nah, he's not right for it. And then they just canceled the character out of it. But after Dark Justice, I was starting all over again. And I just felt like every time I went to an audition, I was begging. I, I felt like I was just begging for a role. And that kind of sucked. I was living in L.A. That's when they had the, the UFC. And I, I saw boys fight. And I was like, wow, this guy's, you know, amazing. And I started studying with boys out in L.A. And that's when I met Ricky and Phil. Big mm-hmm. Larise. At the Gracie Academy in LA. That's how you ran into Rick and Phil. So you're yeah. out in Torrance. Wow. So yeah. You started with Royce oh. and then you met Rick and Phil. And then when you came yeah, back to Philly, how long did you train out in the yeah. Gracie Academy for? Off and on. Uh, a couple of years. I got my blue belt from Royce, which was, I swear to God, I cherish my blue belt from Royce <laughs> more than any other belt I ever got. And it's not to put shame on my black belt and people who gave me that. I was proud of that. But when I got a blue belt from the world champion, oh man, 
it's like even Ricky, like you know, Ricky teases me about it because Ricky at that time was already a blue belt, and Phil was a purple belt, and back then, no American was higher than a, a purple belt. Yeah. That's just how the Gracies were, and so I didn't think it was possible to get higher than a purple belt. So I stopped training because it was very expensive for people who weren't in the the teaching program. Ricky and Phil, they were in the instructors program. Mm-hmm. I was just someone going there to take classes, and it was that's twenty five dollars a class. And you couldn't get decent unless you took at least three classes uh, a week. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I was like, like off and on. And uh, yeah, when I got my blue belt, oh man, I screamed and hollered. And it wasn't like a test. He just, Hoist just came on. Hoist and this other guy named Kaiki, another black belt. From yeah, so, Kaiki, yeah, sure. The, uh, yeah, I remember. So okay. I was rolling and I, I tapped out a blue belt. I think I put him in, in a triangle. And Hoist and, and, and Kaiki, they stand over me. And they got this like stern face, you know, like this. And I'm like, well, like, what's going on? Like, I, I felt like they just something wrong. And they wouldn't say anything. They just stared at me. And then all of a sudden, Hoist digs into his gay and he pulls out a blue belt. And it still doesn't even dawn on me that they're about to give me the belt. And then I look around and I notice, hold it. I'm the only white belt in the room this day. Everybody else has a blue belt. I was like, <gasps> And I jump up and I scream, and then my horse is like, hey, you didn't stand in base. I'm taking the belt back. I was like, no, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know, that's changed. Oh, man, I was hugging everybody. And Ricky, you know, he's going to tease me because I was hugging everybody. Rick, I hugged everybody. Oh, my God. I was like, I'm one of you now. I'm actually, I have some color on my belt. My blue belt was my favorite belt. Yeah, that's a great story. I didn't, I never heard that story before. I remember Steve Maxwell, my, my, the first class I ever took was with Steve Maxwell at Maxercise. And, yeah. and then when someone got their blue belt, he used to say, when you get your blue belt, you officially belong. It's like pledging your fraternity. You belong, you're part of the crew. Those guys are Rick and Phil are just absolutely phenomenal. My blue belt, I was lucky enough to take uh, some privates with Phil back in the day. And after one private, we rolled a little bit. And he let me do a lot of stuff to him. And then mm-hmm. at the end, he pulls out the belt and gives it to me at the end of the session. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, who's this for? Should I give this to somebody? Yeah. Where do I need to do with this? Because no, put this on. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you're floored. Because you think you're going to be a white belt yeah. forever. Like, like, like you're not yep. worthy of that belt. And, uh, for, years, for years, you got that white belt and you just, you just figure out that's what I'm going to be. That's I'm going to die. I'm going to die a white belt because I suck at this. And, and yeah, no, absolutely. That's so cool. And believe it or not, believe it or not that's how I felt about acting as well. Because when I was never that guy for so long, I was just getting extras parts or maybe i get one line in a project and i was just like that's who i'll be i'll be like the white belt so that thing out but i was so happy just to be a part of it i was okay with it i never thought i was going to be that guy i never thought that wow. and just like in in jiu-jitsu i never thought i was going to be that guy i never i never thought anyone to ask me how do you do this move ever Two different worlds, like like jujitsu, like life. The, the, the principles that, that made you a great actor, humility and awareness and some courage to take risks, that's the same stuff that makes you good at jujitsu. You need endurance, right? Like you do an acting, you got to keep going. Jujitsu, you got to keep going, got to keep showing up. You have a bit of humility, you got to keep learning, got to keep evolving, iterating. You're going to get your ass kicked, so you got to get up and keep going back. And yep. I think those principles work on both worlds. I mean, you... you same thing. Wow. You, you yeah. check your you check your ego at the door. Yeah. Take the shoes even off. Not everybody does. <laughs> yeah. Even though not everybody does, just like in acting, just like in jujitsu, it's not. There'll be some people who'll rub it in their face that they beat you in something, and uh, there's there'll be some people who'll be really cool about it. Wrapping up, be respectful of your time. What's the most exciting project you're working on now? 
Man, I actually started this uh, this tour bus company. I was downtown in Philly, and some tourists came to me and they're like, "Hey, do you know where the old Philadelphia International Records studio is?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, it's by Broad and Spruce Street." And then he asked me something else about them, and I just happened to know the answer. And then he asked me something else, and I just happened to know the answer. And then the guy said to me, "He's like, oh my God, man, you could give a tour about this stuff." And I was like, I guess maybe I could, you know. And I just didn't think of it. I was visiting Philly, and I was with my mom, and we went to get a cheesesteak because you can't get a cheesesteak anywhere in the world except Philly, you know. And there were two guys behind the counter, and one guy, oh my God, that's a dude, that's a dude, that's a guy from the Cosby Show. And then the other guy behind the counter got angry and he went to fight. He was like, "Stop lying, that's not you." Nobody can be uh, on TV and come from Philly. You got to be from Hollywood and New York. Stop lying. And I was like, dude, you really don't know all of the great people that came from Philly? Are you serious? He said, no one, no one can be great from Philly. Nobody. And I was like, wow, that's really sad that you don't know the history of Philly. And then I realized there are a lot of kids like that who don't know the history of Philly. A lot of great people um, from Philly. So I was like, I'd like to teach kids, all the great people from Philly. That's what the tour does. We talk about everybody who made a great contribution musically from Philly. So we talk about, of course, American Bandstand days. We talk about all the opera singers. We talk about all the jazz players. We talk about Philadelphia International Records. And of course, Gamble and Huff, Boys to Men, The Roots. We talk about all those guys, Jack and Sullivan, all these people who've done amazing things who are from Philly that people don't know. Are the tours on their way now? Yeah, yeah, you can go to www.themusicalhistorytours.com and you can check it out. That's awesome. Good luck with that. That's such a creative idea. I wish you a lot of luck with that. A couple more questions, get to know you a little bit more as a person. What values do you try to pass on to your kids? Dude, my kids have been teaching me stuff. Also, <laughs> I had this image of what I was going to do and what kind of dad I was going to be and how strict I was going to be and how I was going to be this and how I was going to be that. And you're going to be a chip off the old block, just like the Gracies. All of the kids are jujitsu practitioners and I'm going to build this legacy up. You're going to be funny and you're going to be an actor and you're going to be a martial artist and you're going to be good in math and you're going to be, you know, what? A, and, um, yeah, good numbers like with my dad. But you think of that chip off the old block. But my son is not me. And I was trying to pressure him to be me. You know, so I started him in jujitsu when he was four. And I just noticed just like sometimes he wasn't, and he had this, this sad expression on his face, like when he would disappoint me in jujitsu. I was like, what am I doing? He's a different person. He's not that mini me. That's what. All that thing is, no, he is his own person. He's really into computers. And so I actually put him in a coding class instead of a, a jiu-jitsu class. It's like he's, yeah, that, so that's what I'm learning. My daughter is more like me in that aspect, but my son is like, no. It goes back to what we spoke about jujitsu and acting, humility, awareness, putting your ego at the door and having the ability to pivot and iterate. Like he started in jujitsu, yeah. but now like he, he's better in the coding class. That's great. Good luck to your son. That's, yeah. that's fantastic. What advice would you have for an aspiring actor or actress? A teenager says, hey, I want to try making it in the acting business. What advice would you give him? It's hard. It's make sure you're doing it because there's something burning inside of you that you feel you have to do it. And if it's for a superficial reason that you're doing it, you know, to get money or to 
naked girls or whatever. Not that those are bad things. (laughs) (laughs) All the grief that you're going to go through to get that. It's got to be because there's something internal inside of you. This is like boiling and screaming to want to speak on and and express. And that's what an artist is. You know, an artist, like uh, Helio Gracie, he was an artist in in jiu-jitsu. It's like an artist is someone, in my mind, when there's a blank. Let's say there's, there's a blank wall, just nothing. An artist can look at that wall and can create this beautiful thing from absolutely nothing. If you're that kind of artist, you should pursue it. If you're not, then I don't know if you should. It's, if you're a songwriter, you can like listen to silence. You can be in a room where there's this absolute silence. And then suddenly like you hit one note and then that one note turns into a chord. And you start hitting this core position. Next thing you know, it's you've created this thing from silence. That's an artist. A martial artist, Philo Gracie, he invented Brazilian jiu-jitsu. It was like the way that it was before. It was nothing. It was not working for him. And instead of quitting, he created something else that was amazing. That is an artist. There are martial artists. There are musical artists. There are, there are different artists. But there's a whole lot of heartache that goes into it because there's so many factors. It's not just talent, but it's your look. Are you physically right for something that someone wrote that you could take the bill for? Two more questions, wrapping up. If you could go back and talk to the people around that dinner table when you were like 10 years old, maybe your mom or your dad or your brother or sister, what would you want to tell them? I don't know, because everything that was said and done to me made me the person that I am. The good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, it was good. Last question. If you had to get a quote or a saying tattooed on your body, what would that quote or motto say? (laughs) It's better to be smart than to be strong. It's better to be smart than to be strong. Perfect. I think that's uh, about as good a spot to wrap up as any. Clayton Prince, I'd like to thank you for joining us. Incredible career. Thank you for having me. Incredible stories. Thank you for your time. Thank you for sharing some great memories with the Cosby Show and Saturday Night Live and your journey. You are a grinder. Going through all that and sleeping in, what you say, crack houses and winding up on the most popular TV show. That is not easy to do, and you did it. So congratulations, man. Thank you, brother. If people were looking for you and your new tour company online, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, uh, the musicalhistorytours.com. Please come check it out. So, www.themusicalhistorytours.com. And also, I'll put that in the show notes as well. Clayton Prince, it was awesome to see you. Thanks, man. It's great seeing you. And I can't wait for you for us to roll again.